encourage you to take your copies of God's Word and open it to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 22 and work down through the end of the chapter this morning. This is on page 52 in the Pewback Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, feel free to open there and be able to refer back quickly. But also take that home with you as our church's gift to you if you will commit to read it. What are you afraid of? What are those things that cross your mind and you think, I don't know how I'd recover if that happened? I mean that scenario that you wake up and either your heart is pounding, your eyes are crying because you've just had a nightmare about it. Friends, what do you fear? When our text this morning, Lucas helping us connect the dots and the events and dealings of Jesus' life to help us more fully and more clearly see who He is. And when we see Him as He is, then our hearts move from fear to faith. So let's ask the Lord to do that work in us this morning through His Word. Father... As we've sung, and as we now come to your word, we ask that you would lead us out, that you would cause us to trust you more fully, having spent this time together in your word. We ask that you would do this great work for your glory in our midst, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. In verses 22 through 25, we see, don't fear danger, trust Jesus. Don't fear danger, trust Jesus. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And he went, they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Now the words one day mark off a new unit in Luke's narrative. But given the disciples' question in verse 25, there's a link back to the obedience theme from the last section. If the winds and the waves do what Jesus says, then the implication is we'd better all do the same. But while it's certainly implied from this scene that we would obey Jesus' word, that's not Luke's emphasis. Yes, Jesus is worthy of our obedience, but what Luke wants us to see here is that Jesus is worthy of our faith, even in the face of terrifying danger. You see, before the storm, the disciples were content to do what Jesus said, even though it meant going to Gentile territory. It was when things got rough that they started to fear for their lives and began to panic. But before you go thinking, which some of you probably are, that 
the disciples were just a bunch of wimps who should have taken swim lessons, you need to remember that many of these men had been fishermen their whole lives. They weren't afraid of water. They had lived on the water. And no doubt they had seen many different storms in their day, but this one was different. The wind had created waves that crashed into the side of the boat and began to fill it with water. They all realized if this continues for much longer, we're going down and we're all going to drown. They really were in danger for their lives. And Jesus is asleep. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you know of anyone else in the Bible who slept on a boat during a terrible storm? Well, we just finished going through the book of Jonah, and if you're thinking Jonah, you'd be right. If you remember, in his case, the captain had gone to him panicking, telling him to wake up and throw his prayer to his God into theirs as a last-ditch effort of desperation. But in comparison, what does Jesus do when his disciples wake him up? He speaks to the winds and the waves himself. He has authority over creation to put chaos in its place. Creation listens to him. He is the same one who had spoken them into existence when the world began, and he had never relinquished control. And so in an instant, this rage is calmed. Which if you stop and think about it, that itself testifies to the fact that this was a miracle. We know that storms come and go. They, they go through the land as they're traveling on. But for the rippling of the waves to die down in a moment like this isn't normal. Jesus caused them to stop. So that with their jaws dropped and their ears open, Jesus asked them a simple and yet profound question. Where is your faith? Maybe their faith had been in the weather or in their boat or in their past experience with storms or maybe even in their ability to swim. But in the blink of an eye, all those had failed them. Sometimes it takes a crisis to expose what we really place our trust in. The truth about where their hopes had been had been revealed. And so by asking this question, Jesus is calling the disciples to put their faith in him. And then their faith would never fail because he will never fail. Now, if you haven't figured this out yet, everything Jesus does is intentional. There's no question he asks. There's no prayer he prays or miracle he performs that isn't done without a specific purpose. The exhausted, napping man also happens to be all-powerful God. And so even though in one sense they really were in danger, in another sense, because Jesus was with them, they could not have been more secure. They were still learning to trust him. But through this dramatic moment, Jesus was giving them one more powerful reason 
to trust him. And Jesus is intentionally moving his disciples away from fear to faith. And very soon in our text for next week, he'll ask them the question, who do you say that I am? And this moment will factor into how they answer. For now, they were learning, don't fear danger, trust Jesus. Next, in verses 26 through 39, we see, don't fear demons, trust Jesus. Don't fear demons, trust Jesus. Pick up in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gennesarenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gennesarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. It was smooth sailing from there to their intended destination, but once they hit shore, drama came looking for them again. Luke gives us the sense that Jesus has no sooner put his foot on the ground than he's faced with a showdown. Now, for those of you who are Western fans, I just personally happen to hear the dual music from the good, the bad, and the ugly as soon as he puts his foot down and there's this man. That might just be me. We've seen Jesus cast out demons before, but in this case, it is more severe than we've ever seen and as severe as they come. Everyone knew about this man's condition. He'd been this way for a long time. No human restraints could contain him. And to make sure we know why, Jesus asked this man for his name. Now, this isn't an introduction. It's an exposure of the legion of demons that possess this man. Now, pay attention to those odds. Jesus versus an army of demons. Who's your money on? Well, the demonic army may have wiped the floor with everyone else who tried to whip them, but when Jesus shows up, they're the ones 
who fall on the floor in verse 28. Why? Because they recognize Jesus is the Son of God with the authority to cast them into the abyss. It's only by his permission that they enter into this herd of pigs. You only ask permission from people in authority over you. And just note, they don't just ask, we're told, they begged. Now, other New Testament authors remind us that we're in a spiritual battle as Christians. But I want you to remember that the Son of God is not. This isn't a battle. There's no fight. There's only surrender and submission to the supreme authority of Christ. All the power, all the force that this army of demons could muster is calmly commanded by Jesus. Friends, don't fear demons. Fear Jesus. But not like the townspeople fear Jesus. Luke tells us that upon hearing from the herdsmen, the people came out to find the man that they all knew to be crazy and uncontrollable, changed by some newcomer they didn't know. And they were seized with great fear. It's pretty easy to understand why. Here was someone with greater power and greater authority than anyone they'd ever known and greater than these demons. But instead of bowing down before him in worship, they begged him to leave. They assumed that having the Son of the Most High God in their presence would only be bad news for them. But the tragedy is Jesus hadn't come to condemn them, but to save them. And they were driving him away. If they'd only considered all of the evidence more carefully, they would have seen the truth about his character. Here was a man who'd been in the agony of demon torment for who knows how long. He'd been driven away, imprisoned by guards, enslaved by a legion of demons. He was living in a graveyard without any clothes, much less anyone to care for him. He was out of his mind. And yet, here he was, a new man at the feet of Jesus. He was naked, and Jesus clothed him. And there's more than fabric here. There's the sense of dignity given back to this man. Jesus had taken this man's shame and reproach away. This man was welcomed as Jesus' disciple where he sat at his feet. And the people still didn't connect the dots that Jesus' coming was good news. Maybe that's you, non-Christian. Maybe you don't trace all the acts of grace and kindness you've been shown back to a loving God. Maybe you credit them to your upbringing and family. Or maybe just luck or chance. Well, the truth is, if there's anything good in your life, God is the one who's blessed you to experience it. 
but not as an end in itself. His comparatively small acts of goodness are intended to point you to the infinitely greater eternal grace offered to you by believing in Christ. But more on that later. For now we see the formerly demon-possessed man gets it. He understood from firsthand experience that Jesus' coming with all his power, all his authority, was great news because he is loving, merciful, and kind. He would have gone with Jesus, but for now Jesus tells him to stay with a purpose, to tell others his personal testimony that Jesus' coming was good news. But even though it wasn't what he wanted, the man obeyed Jesus and took the message, not just to his home, but throughout the whole city. This trip had yielded one initial convert, but it turned out that it would be good soil on mission that would see a hundredfold in return. Now, notice how Luke is helping us connect the dots about who Jesus is in verse 39. Jesus tells the man, declare how much God has done for you. And then we're told he went out proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. Which is it? Both. Jesus is God the Son. Now, church... Has Jesus done anything for any of you? The answer is yes. Has he done much or just a little? The answer is much. When's the last time you told someone what Jesus has done for you? When's the last time you've told someone what Jesus has done for you? Are you eager to speculate to other people inside, outside the church about angels and demons, about all kinds of conspiracy theories, but you're hesitant to speak the facts about Jesus? Why is that? Are you afraid of demons? or the beast, or the Antichrist? Friend, don't fear demons. Fear Jesus. In verses 40 through 48, don't fear disease, trust Jesus. Don't fear disease, trust Jesus. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And following at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately... Her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I'm back on Jewish soil now. The crowds have been waiting for Jesus. Luke seems to be hinting at the the pace and immediacy of Jesus' ministry. Just think about what we've read so far. He got in a boat, subdued a storm, landed on the shore, immediately met a demon-possessed man, dealt with him, was asked to leave, got back in the boat, landed on shore, immediately met this crowd and a man with a dying daughter, headed to his house, was interrupted on the way by a woman in need. (laughs) It's exhausting just to think about it. No wonder he's napping in the boat. The needs of the people were pressing. But Jesus was never irritable or resentful. He never got frazzled or snapped under pressure. He just continued to serve the people and stockpile reasons for the disciples and the crowds and us now too to trust him by experiencing his love and power. So the initial problem that Jesus is confronted with is this dying preteen who happened to be this religious leader's only daughter. Now that that should seem a little strange to us given that we're told he's a ruler of the synagogue because of the way we've seen so many of the religious leaders treat Jesus. But Jesus doesn't have any prejudice or malice toward them. And so he goes with Jairus and the crowd goes with him. But before he can get there, someone else comes to him too. Luke introduces us to a woman in the crowd with a serious pre-existing medical condition. And she'd spent over a decade of her life, along with her life savings, trying to find healing, but it always escaped her. She'd no doubt tried solution after solution gotten her hopes up when any new procedure, approach, or treatment became available only to have her hopes dashed when they failed. But despite failure after failure, for as long as Jairus' daughter had even been alive, this woman still believed that Jesus could do what no one else could. She believed that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease to heal. And she was right. When she simply touched the edge of the garment that was touching him, immediately she was healed. What the professionals with all their skills and abilities hadn't been able to do For years and repeated attempts, Jesus did in an instant. Now at that point, the the record player screeches and the music stops. And Jesus asks in verse 45, who was it that touched me? Now in case you're like Peter, and this isn't obvious to you yet, Jesus isn't asking a question that he doesn't have an answer to. Friends, (laughs) 
the one who calms the wind and the waves, the one who casts out a legion of demons, the one who heals a woman when she touches his frayed threads doesn't need to be told who touched him. That's confirmed in verse 47 when the woman realizes that she isn't hidden from Jesus even though she's surrounded by a crowd. So what's going on here? Well, it's not that Jesus is angered by what she's done. And it's definitely not that as he's been going, he's been arrogantly humming the tune to can't touch this. Jesus is hitting the pause button to bring out the larger significance of what's happened for the sake of this woman and the crowd. Jesus isn't asking for knowledge He's asking for her acknowledgement. She'd been healed privately. But God's work in her life was meant to be public. So instead of announcing it for her, Jesus provides her with the opportunity to personally testify to what he's done for her. And that's exactly what she does. She goes public with her praise to God, much like the former demon-possessed man in the last section. Now, you might wonder why this woman would come trembling to Jesus, like she's gotten caught, and why she had covertly come to Jesus in the crowd like this in the first place. Well, the answer is her issue of blood. This is what the law said. If a woman has a discharge of blood, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches these things shall be unclean. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. That's why, instead of coming to Jesus like Jairus, she comes from behind up to Jesus as one considered unclean. This woman no doubt felt ostracized from her people and likely even from God given that she wasn't able to enter the temple. And she would have probably carried a sense of shame and embarrassment from her condition and it had weighed on her for 12 long years that she felt every day. Maybe she feared condemnation and reproach from Jesus. Maybe she felt as though she shouldn't have come to her in her need and uncleanness. But instead of rebuking her after she's spoken the truth, Jesus makes her restoration into the people of God official. He compassionately calls her daughter, a precious child included in the family of God. And though her fellowship with God and his people had been severed, God in the flesh tells her that she has been restored. But notice, he tells her this reconciliation isn't owing to her worthiness or to her gumption, but her faith. It wasn't 
touching the garment that healed her. It was believing in the one wearing the garment that healed her. She's now well body and soul because of her faith in Jesus Christ. She now has peace because Christ has taken away her shame. He did the work that brought her into fellowship with the family of God. Friends, is is there something you're ashamed of? Are you carrying around with you every day the baggage of untold, unknown burdens? Do you think that God doesn't know? Do you think Jesus wouldn't receive you if you came to Him for help? Well, let Jesus' treatment of this woman encourage you that when you come to Jesus in faith with whatever your uncleanness is, it's restoration. It's reconciliation and not ridicule that Jesus offers you. So friends, don't fear disease. Trust Jesus. Finally, in verses 49 through 56, we see don't fear death, trust Jesus. Don't fear death, trust Jesus. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Before we rush to the end, I want you to stop and put yourself in Jarius' position. Imagine the sort of desperation that would have driven this man to do something as his baby girl lay dying. He knew that he was totally helpless to save her, but he was convinced that Jesus could. And so when he learned that Jesus had made it back in town, he'd left the side of his little sweetheart to go and plead with him to come and heal her. Imagine the relief that he would have felt when Jesus actually agreed to go with him. So that when they got slowed down by someone who was also suffering but not dying, he probably, like all of us, would have been filled with the inner turmoil of panic from the urgency of his own daughter's need. And maybe some of that tension was relieved when he saw Jesus' power to heal even through his coattails. And that proved to him that he'd come to the right man. But then the bomb drops. 
news comes that they're too late. Undoubtedly, a a wave of emotions swept over this man as he realized he'd failed his baby girl. He wasn't even able to be there to hold her hand, to tell her it'd be okay, that he loved her one last time. All of the pain and all of the sadness of that moment echoing in the words, your daughter is dead. In the sorrow of hopelessness, the messengers assume there's nothing Jesus can do now. He may have been able to heal her when she was just dying, but now that she's dead, there's no use. There's no hope. That's what they thought. But they were wrong. And Jesus looks deep into the tear-filled eyes of this man and speaks to the unspoken fears of his heart with a promise. Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Now that might sound like an inspirational cat poster, but it's not. Jesus isn't telling this man to believe in himself. He's telling him to believe in him. Jesus is actually going to do something about this wrong, this death. And Jarius knew enough about Jesus to trust him. He was with the one with authority over life and death itself. And so they kept going. When they arrived, Jesus left the crowd and took only Peter, James, and John in along with the girl's parents. Now, if he was like one of these so-called faith healers on TV, he would have had them bring out her dead body to make a show of it. But Jesus never clamors for fame. He doesn't need to. This wasn't a moment for insensitive rubbernecking. This was an intimate moment for these few to see the hand of God. And Jesus told the mourners not to weep because this death wasn't her end, but they scoffed at him in disbelief. They laughed at him in their inability to fathom his power to raise the dead. And yet all the same, Without their faith, Jesus gives this girl back her life with the tenderness and compassion expressed in the simple words, child, arise. And her spirit, which had left her body temporarily at death, filled her once again. No hocus pocus. No dramatic presentation. No sleight of hand, no magic, just miracle. This is our God, church. This is why we worship Him. There is none like our God. He alone holds absolute power and authority over life and death. As with the storm... As with the demon-possessed man and the bleeding woman, her full recovery is immediate, even her appetite. 
And just like that, her parents' mourning is turned to rejoicing. Now we can imagine that these amazed parents would have wanted to shout from the rooftops that their child was alive. But Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. Now obvious, we're, we're still hearing this now. So it wasn't intended to be a secret forever. So then that begs the question, why tell them to be silent then? You may have noticed, if you're particularly astute there in verse 28, that Jesus didn't silence the demon that called him son of the most high God. And in verse 39, he actually told the man to not keep silent about what he had done for him. That's because there Jesus was in Gentile territory. But here we see the more familiar pattern of keeping such obvious expressions of his power under wraps. We've talked about several times, given the Jewish misinterpretation of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do, Jesus' ministry would have been cut short if reports weren't somewhat constrained, contained, or came at least from primary sources. On the other hand, for the disciples and for those with ears to hear, these miracles were being connected like dots to show the truth that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. You see, calming the storm, delivering the demon-possessed man, healing the sick woman, and raising the dead were all pointing to something greater than themselves. On their own, these miracles certainly were incredible. But ultimately, the salvation, deliverance, healing, and resurrection Jesus performed for these individuals was temporary. All the people who experienced these miracles eventually died. They experienced the blessing of these miracles on earth for just a little while. But they foreshadowed the eternal salvation, eternal deliverance, eternal healing, and eternal resurrection that Jesus accomplished for all those who will ever repent of their sins and believe in him. Friends, Jesus was not just a man. His miracles, authority, and perfect life prove that he was and is also God. And as uniquely fully God and fully man, Jesus demonstrated the love of God for the world. He came into it with all its darkness and brokenness in order to display the faithfulness of the Father. He took on himself the sin, shame, uncleanness, reproach, and wrath of God for his people as he bled and died on the cross. But through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And how do we know that he conquered death? He's alive. 
We don't celebrate that just on Easter, every Lord's Day. That's why we gather on Sunday and not Saturday, because Christ got out of the grave. God raised him from the dead in a greater way than this little girl was raised because he never will die again. And that's why he can offer you eternal life this morning if you will repent of your sins and believe in him. Friend, connect the dots of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Believe in what he has said and what he has done and move from your fear to faith in him. If you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I would be glad to talk to you either during our last song or at the end of this service. Church, I want to circle back around to the question we started with. What are you afraid of? I'm sure we could list all sorts of things related to danger, demons, and disease like we've seen here. But I think in one sense, we could boil all of our fears down to death. Our fears are wrapped up in our love of life, either ours or the lives of others and their quality. Now, how are you dealing with your fear? Where do you put your trust when you even feel like your life is in danger? Where is your faith in the face of the fear of death? In yourself? In your preparedness or your cleverness? in your risk management protocol or the low probability of the death you're facing, in diet and exercise, good health care, or a vaccine? Loved ones, no matter who you are or what you do or how you prepare, the death rate is still 100%. Christian, fear will only hold you back from advancing the kingdom of God by faith. So then what should we do with our fears? Because we've all got them. Well, here's what one pastor said 400 years ago. See if it applies. The saints are oft feeding their hopes on the carcasses of their slain fears. I love it. Feed your faith by slaughtering your fears, Christian. Christ has defeated death. We have no business fearing it. Whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. To live is Christ, to die is gain. We already have eternal life through faith in the Son of God who has been resurrected from the dead. He is our hope. He is our life. And He deserves our faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would do that great work in us by Your Spirit to move us from fear to faith. We know it's a daily struggle but we know the victory has been secured because Christ is alive. Would you, this morning afresh, fill our hearts with great courage and confidence in what Christ has done so that we might walk by faith and not by fear.
We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.